The year is 1947. World War II has ended. The Allied powers are holding trials. Out of this came a uh, trial of Nazi physicians and a three-judge panel created what's called the Nuremberg Code. And the Nuremberg Code was intended to protect human subjects and future scientific research from inhumane treatment. Ironically, a year later, 632 pregnant women were exposed in a scientific study to a chemical that was not well studied or the safety was not known. This study was published by Olive Watkins Smith and was entitled Diethylstilbestrol and the Prevention and Treatment of Complications of Pregnancy. This paper is part of what kicked off the widespread use of diethylstilbestrol or DES to prevent miscarriages and to help women carry their fetuses to term. This study and others by Smith and her husband were used by drug companies to drive a narrative that DES was great for expected couples that had trouble holding a pregnancy. However, in the following years, we later found out that there were developmental abnormalities noticed in daughters exposed prenatally to DES. There were also increases in certain cancers. Unfortunately, it wasn't until the late 1970s that the FDA was able to curtail DES off-label prescriptions or off-label use. That's, that's when a physician is going to use a drug in a way that the FDA did not intend or approve it for. And the FDA started replacing DES with other more effective drugs. Today on Critical Science, we're going to talk about what happens when confirmation bias, poor study designs, and observational studies combine. This is the unfortunate story of diethylstilbestrol and drug studies going wrong. Now, George and Olive Smith were true believers in diethylstilbestrol. They, uh, at the time, was also known as stilbestrol. They, they had a hypothesis that they believed was right, and they set out to prove that they were right. They believed that low blood levels of estrogen in a woman's body is what caused miscarriages and premature delivery. They believed that progesterone actually caused estrogen to stay in the blood longer and that low levels of progesterone caused estrogen to drop and thus caused pregnancies to be lost. Now, today, we know that's not true. We know that progesterone is key for maintaining a pregnancy. But at the time, George and Olive Smith both thought that because of their work in this area and their observational studies, that it was actually estrogen that was responsible maintaining a pregnancy to term. Now, one of the big problems with George and Olive's work is the fact that they were using what we call samples of convenience. So a sample of convenience is where we don't necessarily take individuals who are uh, representative of the population, but rather we take individuals that we have easy access to. A really good example of this, if you've ever taken a psychology course in college, you may be familiar with the idea that, uh, hey, you're going to get extra credit if you're involved in some of the experiments in the psych uh, department. The students who are a part of those studies 
are what we would call a sample of convenience. They didn't go out and try to find a representative sample of the entire population. Instead, the researchers are using the subjects that they have easy access to. And in the case of a college course, it's going to be young individuals. Now, George and Alice Smith, they were chasing down this hypothesis. And one of the challenges with hypothesis testing is we're not trying to prove the hypothesis right. Instead, we need to prove that the hypothesis is wrong. So we need to test it, but we need to like stress test it. Sometimes we call this falsification. Uh, at least the, the philosophers of science tend to call this falsification, such as Popper. He liked to say that the only way to really test a hypothesis is to try to very hard to disprove it. Otherwise, what happens is we are at risk of confirmation bias. And that's one of the things that Popper was very instrumental in his philosophy of science in convincing other scientists about is that we need to falsify our hypotheses. It's not good enough that a hypothesis could be falsified. We actually need to try to make it, you know, to really try to test, is this hypothesis always true under those conditions that we think it is? George and Olive Smith did not do that. They set out to confirm their hypotheses. When they were conducting their studies, they focused squarely on trying to give women estrogens to maintain their pregnancies rather than trying to identify if estrogen was really the culprit. Now, in 1938, the Smiths published their hypothesis that the idea that they're pursuing about estrogen in pregnancy, where estrogen is the key factor that causes pregnancies to go to term. And what they noticed were some correlations that suggested that progestins were driving the metabolism of estrogens. And they believe that this metabolism of estrogens is what led to issues with pregnancy, at first with preeclampsia, and later they broadened their hypotheses out to include miscarriages and premature delivery. The problem is their data isn't very robust. This paper from 1938, in some cases, their observations were, were based on a single pregnant individual. In other cases, it was 18 pregnant women. There weren't enough women to draw any conclusions, especially from just a single lab group. Now, if we look at some of their other studies, they published again in 1940, they looked at the urine hormone levels of three preeclamptic and three non-preeclamptic women. Again, that's far too few women to draw conclusions. Would you feel safe taking a drug? if? In the human clinical trials, they just had three individuals take a placebo and three people take the drug. Probably not. In clinical trials today, we have rules where it's going to be thousands of people for most drugs, unless it's a rare disease and there are special rules for rare diseases. Pregnancy is not really, you know, a rare type of phenomenon. Preeclampsia was not a, a very rare phenomenon. And infertility of various kinds are not rare. So there's no reason to limit it to just three people. But the Smiths still use this information, this really weak data, to support their hypotheses. And they continued to publish papers that supported their hypotheses. In 1946, they actually made a dosing recommendation for pregnant women to take diethylstilbestrol to prevent preeclampsia. They studied just one 
woman, just one woman. And on the basis of hormone levels in her urine, they recommended diethylstilbestrol should be given to pregnant women starting at the 16th week of pregnancy with an increasing dose every week by five milligrams through the 35th week of pregnancy. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here. Earlier, I just mentioned Karl Popper. He's a great philosopher of science. And again, he reminded us that we need to avoid confirmation bias. That's really good advice just in general. In your general daily lives, you know, we should just avoid confirmation bias if we can. It's just good advice. But it's critical in science that we avoid confirmation bias. Because we're not really testing our hypotheses by chasing after data that support our preconceived notions or our hypotheses. You know, doing that is the same as me sitting here in North Carolina saying there are only white swans in the world. And me never bothering to leave my house to find out, guess what? There might be non-white swans somewhere. And of course, we know there are black swans in the world. They just happen to be in Australia, not in North Carolina. But if I don't bother to disprove my hypothesis, then I'm not actually testing it. So we actually need to stress test our hypotheses. We need to go out of our way to see under what circumstances are our hypotheses not true. And this is, this is critical in science. If all I ever do is try to build studies that support my hypothesis, then I'm not actually testing it. And it's really easy to do this, by the way. And as a scientist, and I, I will admit, I am guilty of this very early on in my career. You know, if I have a hypothesis, I don't want to see it destroyed. I don't want to see it falsified. I don't want to see this idea that I've glommed onto to not be true. And, you know, a lot of scientists, especially when we're really new, especially when we're really young, it's hard for us to wrap our mind around the fact that this hypothesis, this thing that we've been chasing all these years might be wrong. It's, it, you know, because a lot of us take our hypotheses kind of personally. It's not, it's not uncommon for us to refer to them kind of metaphorically as our children, right? So I've since been reformed and I ask a lot of questions about my beliefs in general and my biases in general. I try to control them to the best of my ability, which I do not always do a great job of, especially when we were looking at buying a new car recently. But these are things that we need to do if we want to be critical thinkers. We need to question ourselves. We need to understand what our biases are. We need to question our beliefs and we need to set aside our biases as best that we can. And as a scientist, that means we actually need to try to test our hypotheses and try to find what's wrong. And if we try really, really, really hard to prove our hypothesis is wrong and it's still turning out our hypothesis is right, that's great. That just lends more strength to the hypothesis. And we're going through this right now with a, uh, a large hypothesis that uh, we're driving in another area of toxicology. And we are doing our darndest to just make sure that this is the best way of going about it's in the genetically uh, drive maximum dose modeling. And we're trying to find ways of breaking our hypothesis, you know, just to see, because 
maybe our approach isn't the best. Maybe there's a better approach out there. Maybe our approach is missing something about the basic biology. I don't know, but we need to figure it out. So we're working really hard on trying to disprove our hypothesis and it's painful, but it's important. And that's how science is supposed to work. Unfortunately, that's not what the Smiths did. They weren't actively doing experiments to test that their hypothesis was wrong. They're actively doing experiments to test that their hypothesis is right. What they need to do is continue to find ways of making their data tell the story that is real, not necessarily the story that agrees with their hypothesis. They need to try to do their science in a slightly different way. One thing they could have done better is use placebos. They could have tried matching their patients. They could have tried not using samples of convenience. I understand these things were a lot harder in the 1940s than they are today. I understand it's very easy for me to say all these things today. And it could even, you know, I could rightly be accused of being anachronistic to some degree. That's not really my point. My point is this. We can learn from history. This was a terrible, terrible thing that happened. Let's learn from what happened here and not make these mistakes again. One of the big issues is that the Smiths generally operate with observational data. Rarely did they actually do experiments. And when they did do them, they didn't do those right either. In their major 1948 work on diethylstilbester on the prevention and treatment of complications of pregnancy, let's, let's just go through the quick checklist here. They didn't use a placebo. They have an extremely small number of women participating, although it's large by their standards, at 95 women from various clinics across the United States. The women are still a sample of convenience. They're not enrolled, matched, or randomly assigned to a treatment. Everyone received the same diethylstilbestrol treatment under the dosing regimen that the Smiths uh, preferred. The study is purely observational. This is not an experiment. In many cases where they compared historical controls, the effect of DES is indistinguishable from the past history of those same women. Now, you might be asking yourself, you know, okay, so clearly this was bad. This, this, this was really not great science. So what's the aftermath of all this? So we have a bunch of poorly done studies by the Smiths where they're engaging in confirmation bias, they're looking for evidence that supports their hypothesis rather than testing to refute their hypothesis. We've got studies that lack placebos. We've got small numbers of pregnant women being used in these studies. And yet, the pharmaceutical industry used these studies to convince physicians to prescribe DES to women until the FDA stated that DES should not be prescribed to pregnant women. And that was in 1971, a full 30 years after it was widely prescribed. 30 years. In that time period, an estimated 5 to 10 million women were exposed to DES. That's, just think about that for a second. 5 to 10 million pregnant women were exposed to DES. And these women, their daughters 
actually have an increased risk of various types of cancers, including cervical, pancreatic, breast, and other cancers. They might also have fertility issues, including potential increased risk of premature birth and miscarriage. All of this because of a series of poorly done studies by the Smiths, where they engage in confirmation bias. They didn't do actual experiments. These were observational studies. They didn't use a placebo. They were using samples of convenience. Really poorly done science right here. And it all could have been avoided. We've got 5 to 10 million women who are pregnant and their children were exposed to DES. And the daughters of these women have all this increased risk of these various types of cancers. Again, cervical, pancreatic, breast, and other cancers. Some of them probably also have premature birth and miscarriages. This is all things that could have been prevented had the science been done better. And that is the message that we need to send. So the story of DES is really important for all of us to remember. It's especially important for toxicologists. It's a cautionary tale about how science should not be conducted. Now, some might ask, you know, how could this go on for so long? Shouldn't peer review have caught this? Well, that's a great question. There wasn't a lot of peer review at the time, but even if there was, let's just think for a second, you know, do the counterfactual. A lot of scientists really supported the hypothesis that the Smiths were pursuing. There's several letters of support written in various journals supporting the, you know, the Smiths and their hypothesis that estrogen is what was causing pregnancies to be maintained, and thus low levels of estrogen is what was causing pregnancies to not be maintained. And a lot of people felt that DES really was a wonder drug that solved infertility for so many couples. This is a really important thing, right? So even if they had peer review at the time, it'd be easy, it would be very easy to find sympathetic reviewers, just like it is today. It's easy to find sympathetic reviewers for popular hypotheses. And these reviewers would, yeah, okay, this seems reasonable. Let's, let's let it get published. Peer review tends to limit the ability of unpopular hypotheses to gain the light of day. In some ways, peer review can act like censorship by those in positions of power because, well, it is. To be frank, bad science gets through peer review all the time. A really great example is the Wakefield study in The Lancet that claimed that certain vaccines are associated with autism. You know, are scientists still using really small study sizes like the Smiths and still drawing conclusions? Yes, yes, unfortunately they are. It's still a very common practice to see really small sample sizes in human studies, in animal studies, and in vitro studies. It's still extremely common. And it's because science is expensive. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to get money. It's pretty clear to me, though, that we have a lot more work to do to educate scientists and policymakers on the risk of small sample sizes. And, you know, are scientists at least better about avoiding confirmation bias? I'm not so sure. We still see a lot of uncritical testing of hypotheses all the time in science. And I, I see it in papers that I review for journals all the time. We still see confirmation bias, especially at grant review meetings or decisions are made about funding or not funding particular research ideas. In fact, in discussions I've had with colleagues, many uh, call it career suicide, even attempt to prove 
you know, an overriding hypothesis wrong that the scientific community favors. I've seen this with some of my friends who spent their entire careers fighting for a new way of thinking in cancer, only to be sidelined until they retire. We need to do better about training scientists how to recognize their biases and how to actually critically test their favorite hypotheses, because only then will we be able to say that a hypothesis is actually strong. So yeah, we still have a lot of work to do in science, but you know, things are changing and I have hope and you should too. I belong to several different groups of scientists that are actively helping the next generation practice critical thinking. And that's really what it boils down to, you know, Critical thinking and helping people develop and use their critical thinking skills, that's what gives me hope. Just because there's a bunch of lousy studies out there doesn't mean you shouldn't trust science and scientists. It it really means is we all have to be critical thinkers and be better about asking tough questions of science and scientists, and especially the science writers and reporters who are getting that information out to the public. So I have hope, and so should you. But in the meantime, you know, let's keep exercising, developing our critical thinking skills. That's really what's going to help us. It's going to help us with misinformation, no matter where it comes from or what topic it's on. Critical thinking is the way out of this mess that we find ourselves in. That was the story of DES. Again, like I said, you know, we have an opportunity to learn from history. We have an opportunity to see what happens when we stop thinking critically, when we do lousy science, and when we have really poor observational studies and bad study designs. We see what happens. This can have real world effects. And I don't think people always recognize that. So having said that, again, Keep exercising and developing your critical thinking skills. I'm Dr. Lyle Bergoon. This is Critical Science from Raptor Media.